If you had to use one word, like how would you describe the state of the Middle East right now militarily? Hmm. Chaotic? <laughs> um. Yeah. Josh Keating covers international affairs over at Fox. I called him up because I needed someone to talk me through the relentless headlines I've been reading about the ripple effect of the war on Gaza. The other big story this morning, the U.S. launching a new attack against a militant group in the Middle East. What we have are these, like, lots of little conflicts all over the place. This morning, explosions in the city of Erbil, Iraq, after neighboring Iran launched ballistic missiles. Related violent episodes in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran, in Yemen, in the Red Sea. The strike came just hours after the Pentagon said a Houthi drone attacked a U.S. cargo ship. You just see sort of little aspects of it uh, popping up all over the place. All of this raising concern about a wider spillover of violence across the region stemming from the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Even if none of them are really full-scale war the way we're seeing in Gaza, like there's definitely instability and violence in all these places, and they're all related. Yeah, with some of these attacks, it's hard for me to even see how they connect back to Israel. It just seems like some kind of domino effect. Yeah, I mean, well, for instance, you know, Iran launched missiles at the separatist group in Pakistan a few days ago, which does not appear to be directly related to what's going on in Gaza. But, you know, it it sort of seems like while, while attention is elsewhere, they're sort of taking advantage of it to pursue other goals. Josh says, to understand this ramp up in violence, you need to understand the choreographed dance many countries are doing right now. The primary players are Iran and Israel and the U.S. And then there are Iran's allies in Syria and Lebanon and Yemen. Yemen's Houthis have been fighting especially hard. They're punching above their weight, as Josh puts it. But even the Houthis fighting, it seems somewhat contained. It's this strange dynamic where there's this sort of ongoing low-boil war in the Middle East, this sort of low-intensity conflict that happens within prescribed boundaries. Is there a risk that the low boil kind of comes to a head, starts doing more than simmering? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the thing people are really concerned about right now. Um, But, you know, I think if you look at the statements coming out of Tehran, they express solidarity with the Palestinian people, they condemn Israel, but they don't say they're going to war. So if a wider war is unlikely, why does it feel like that wider war is already happening? Today on the show, how Iran and its axis of resistance are keeping the pressure on in the Middle East. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. 
Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I want to go back to the beginning of this escalation we're seeing now to see if we can just talk about how it all began. After October 7th, what happened outside of Israel at that moment? Like, how did the conflict begin to make itself apparent in places outside of Israel and Gaza? Well, uh, you know, I, I think it started on the northern border. I think you saw a sort of increase in exchanges of fire between Israel and Hezbollah. And you saw an increased tempo of attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria by Iran-linked militias. And then you saw the Houthis surprising everybody by firing a ballistic missile at the southern Israeli resort city of Eilat, which is uh, something I think a lot of people didn't even realize was they were capable of. Yeah, I feel like we should contextualize and just talk about how far Yemen is away from Israel. Like, there's a reason why this is surprising. Like, it's not like they're next door neighbors. No, they're not. Uh, you know, Yemen sits more than a thousand miles from Israel. You know, we know they have missiles. They've attacked targets in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates before, but they've never fired anything this far. So I think they've surprised a lot of people with both their military capabilities and with their global ambitions. Can we just pause here and answer the question, who are the Houthis? So the Houthis are a group, they're a member of a uh, minority Shia Muslim sect uh, in northern Yemen. And they first kind of came on the scene in the 1990s as a rebel group fighting against the government of the then dictator Ali Abdullah Saleh. Uh, Saleh was overthrown in Arab Spring-linked protests in 2012, which created this power vacuum in the country, which the Houthis took advantage of, and they seized the capital in 2014, and they still hold it today. So they're like the de facto government in some areas, even though we call them a rebel group. Right. They control about I believe it's a third of Yemen's territory, but the most populous parts of the territory and the capital. But they're not recognized as the legitimate government of Yemen by the international community. You know, the Houthis, since they seized the capital in 2014, have been fighting this brutal civil war against Yemen's internationally recognized government, as well as a military coalition led by Saudi Arabia, um, which received a lot of funding and backing from the United States as well. They have a pretty intense slogan, right? Like, death to America, death to Israel, damnation to the Jews. Like, that's not subtle. Yeah, God is great, death to America, death to Israel, curse on the Jews, and victory for Islam. So this being their slogan, it definitely indicates that they have international ambitions, that they're, they're concerned with more than just control of Yemen. But I think despite that, people have tended to sort of think of them in the past is a more kind of localized threat, but not one that sort of plays the international role that they have been for the last few weeks. Yeah, I, my favorite quote about them came from this Yemeni analyst who gave a speech about like, who are the Houthis and said, I think they dream that the Americans or Israelis attack them because then they'll become a real resistance force. And it just sort of, it helps you understand who they are and, and their goals. Yeah, you know, they, they've been telling their own fighters that they're fighting against the U.S. and Israel to the point that, you know, that there are some accounts where they interview some of these fighters who say like they were surprised that 
you know, when they went to war, they weren't fighting against Americans or Israelis. They're like, we were fighting against other Yemenis mostly. Hmm. And they, they had been designated a terrorist organization, but then the U.S. downgraded them because aid needed to get into Yemen. Is that correct? Yeah. So one thing that's been happening is that for the last two years, Yemen's been in a ceasefire. So while the sort of humanitarian situation's been extremely dire in that country still, there at least hasn't been fighting for the last couple of years. And the U.S. took the step of removing them from the designated terrorist list to allow sort of aid to continue to flow through into Yemeni-controlled areas of the country. Because people in Yemen were starving. There were awful pictures of, of children and babies. Yeah, and the the UN has estimated that more than 377,000 people have been killed by this conflict. But the majority of those are not people who are actually killed by the fighting. Most of that's due to malnutrition, unsafe water, bad medical services. So this has been repeatedly described as the world's worst humanitarian crisis. It arguably still is. And uh, so I think... That was part of the reason why they were taken off the list was to just permit more aid to flow into the country. The Biden administration now is saying they're going to they are redesignating them as on the terrorist list and reimposing a lot of these sanctions because of the attacks on global shipping that we've seen. So what did the Houthi attacks look like over the last couple of months? My impression just from reading is things kind of settled into this routine. They started attacking ships on the Red Sea. So when did it first become clear that that was going to be what they were doing? Yeah, so this pattern kind of began in November. They Houthi rebels boarded and seized the ship called the Galaxy Leader, which is partially owned by an Israeli businessman. And still a lot of the articles about this, you see the pictures from that raid, which which the Houthis distributed themselves of uh, these sort of armed gunmen, uh, you know, descending from a helicopter under the deck of their sh- the ship. And they took the ship back to the coast of Yemen, where it still sits and where the, the crew of that ship are still being essentially held hostage. That sounds like a really intense and very organized approach, like having a helicopter, getting on board a ship. I mean, this isn't just some guys in a boat with machine guns. No. And and I think you have to recognize the kind of the propaganda ability from this. So because instantly there were sort of videos and photos of this, you know, broadcast throughout the world. So it was a major not only demonstration of their military capabilities, but their propaganda operation as well. Hmm. But that was a little more of an outlier. Mostly they've been sort of firing rockets or missiles or drones at ships in the Red Sea. And there've been sort of different methods. One that, you know, I think took a lot of military analysts by surprise and raised a lot of eyebrows. They've been firing ballistic missiles at ships. So, you know, a ballistic missile as opposed to a cruise missile, it travels a lot higher and a lot faster and is a lot more difficult to intercept with a lot of the certain traditional naval countermeasures. And uh, until now, anti-ship ballistic missiles have been sort of theoretical, like uh, until the Houthis did it, no one had ever actually used one of these in combat. And it's the kind of thing, you know, military strategists talk about in a war with China. People wondered, you know, could the Chinese military really, you know, sink U.S. aircraft carriers with ballistic missiles? So this is sophisticated. 
It is sophisticated. Nobody really knew if even the Chinese military had the capability to do this, much less a group like the Houthis who just went ahead and did it. You've written about how I think 12% of global trade flows through the Red Sea. So you can see why this approach from the Houthis would be incredibly problematic, not just for the United States or Israel, but for basically anyone who wants goods to come to them and that need to come to them over the ocean. Right. A huge percent of global oil and natural gas has to pass through this very narrow passageway. And that gives the Houthis a tremendous amount of leverage, and they've taken full advantage of this geography. How so? Like they're they're parked in front of these tiny little entrance and exit points or what? Right. So there's not really any way around it. I mean, uh, well, the way around it is you travel all the way around the coast of Africa, which adds at least 10 days travel time. And, you know, you think about the extra fuel costs, the extra costs you have to pay the crew. Since the 19th century, when the Suez Canal opened, uh, this this route, this Red Sea route, has facilitated a lot of east-west trade, uh, particularly between Europe and the Middle East and East Asia. And now we see major shipping lines and major energy companies avoiding that route altogether. I mean, you see things like a Tesla plant in Germany had to sort of shut down operations for a week because they weren't getting the spare parts they needed from Asia. So back in December, the U.S. announced they were forming this coalition to protect maritime interests in the Red Sea. They sent warships to the region. Did any of this do anything to make things safer or calm down the markets? Well, I think one thing you can give the U.S. military and and all these militaries involved credit for is they're pretty good at shooting down the Houthi missiles and rockets. They have a pretty high success rate at intercepting these. The problem is the amount of money insurance companies are charging these shipping companies. uh, That's gone through the roof in the last few months. So eventually, it actually just becomes cost prohibitive to take this route uh, as opposed to just shipping it around Africa. So that means big shippers like Maersk, the big Danish shipper, and Hapag Lloyd, and you know, big energy companies like BP and Shell, they're all avoiding the Red Sea right now. Eventually, after multiple warnings from the White House, the Biden administration opted to use firepower. Over the last week, they have launched a handful of airstrikes, which the Department of Defense claims will deteriorate the Houthis' ability to block global shipping. But it, it doesn't seem to be having the deterrent effect they, they're hoping for. And I think it's worth keeping in mind, you know, the Houthis have been fighting a war against a, you know, U.S. armed Saudi-led coalition with overwhelming air superiority for a decade. So if that didn't stop them, then, uh, you know, a few sort of targeted U.S. missile strikes it seems unlikely that's going to do it either. After the break, the regional instability and violence continues to expand beyond the Red Sea. Okay, so we've talked about the Houthi rebels and why it's so surprising that they've become main characters in the war in Gaza. Can we talk about some of the other Mideast players and escalations we've seen over the last few weeks? Because there there have been a bunch of them and a bunch of smaller attacks. I, I sort of wonder if there's one attack or one genre of attack that particularly concerns you or got your attention. Hmm. It's interesting to watch what's been happening in Iraq because um, you saw uh, the U.S. launch a rare strike in Baghdad 
on the leader of one of these Iranian-backed militia groups. And you saw uh, a few days ago, Iran actually launched an attack in Erbil, the capital of the Kurdish region, on what it said was a Mossad Israeli intelligence facility, but which which also just appeared to be the compound of sort of a local businessman. Uh, and what struck me about that was it wasn't actually one of these proxy groups. It was Iran itself launching this missile hmm. and uh, sort of stepping out from behind the veil of these groups they usually act through. And so that felt like an escalation to me. Yeah, it also forefronts Iraq as this place where the U.S. military has withdrawn significant amounts of forces, but there's still so much happening there. Different countries in the region are definitely still using Iraq as kind of a a home base, a place to operate from, and a place where like local disagreements are being, you can see them take place in real time. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. still has about 2,500 troops in Iraq and a few hundred in Syria as well. Um, this is kind of the legacy of the war against ISIS. Um, and that was sort of an interesting conflict because there you saw these Iran-backed militias that we're talking about now kind of fighting on the same side as the U.S. against the sort of common threat of of ISIS. Now, now that ISIS is less of a factor, uh, they're sort of turning on each other and the Iran-backed groups are training their fire on uh, the U.S. military in the region. Yeah. And then over the last week, Iran and Pakistan started sparring. What happened there? Like, because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what, what is going on there? That was kind of a reminder that, you know, there are conflicts happening nearby and conflicts that involve Iran that actually sort of have very little to do um, with with Israel or the United States. And uh, and you, you saw that this week with Iran firing a missile strike at this group in Pakistan, a, a separatist group that is sort of fighting for, you know, an independent state in both Pakistan and Iran. Uh, and so, you know, there, there are multiple things and, and there are connections between them, but 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 the connections are, are sometimes a little tenuous. And so, you know, we, we talked earlier about uh, Israel being drawn into a two front war. I mean, uh, Iran is fighting uh, enemies on multiple fronts as well. Hmm. It's funny because Pakistan returned you know, volleyed back when they were attacked by Iran. But then at the same time, they had these carefully crafted statements that they issued, basically saying like, okay, like now that we've gotten that out of our system, I think we can all say we're brotherly countries and dialogue and cooperation is important. And it was just so interesting to me as a representation of what this moment is, which is people skirmishing with each other, but then also very much wanting to keep the skirmishing under control. We do have in the past few years examples of sort of major raging conflicts in the Middle East with huge numbers of casualties, you know, this, the war in Yemen, the war in Syria, uh, what we're seeing in Gaza right now. Um, but, you know, on the edge of those, what we see are these 
this sort of dance of escalation and de-escalation where you see proxies firing at each other, you see sort of limited strikes, um, you know, uh, using missiles and drones. And so there's, there's this kind of like low intensity conflict happening all around, uh, which often doesn't lead to sort of all out conflict uh, the way we've been seeing in these other places. You know, we're talking about this low-intensity conflict, but it is still hotter conflict than we had, I don't know, six months ago. And I do wonder what it would take to roll back what we've seen over the last few weeks and months. Like, is there a strategy for that that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, you know, there was the the now infamous uh, Foreign Affairs article that uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, published right around the time of the October 7th attacks, which described the Middle East as being, you know, quieter than it's ever been in years. And I'm sure uh, Sullivan regrets writing that. But, you know, at, at the time, it was true. I mean, it, the there had been, you know, you saw Saudi Arabia and Iran talking to each other. You saw, um, you know, uh, sort of normalization happening between a lot of countries in Syria. I think that the problem was like, during that period, a lot of people were just kind of sidelining the, Pal- the Israeli-Palestinian issue and assuming it would go away. But, and I, th- I think a lot of Arab governments hope for, hope for that as well. Like As much as the Palestinian cause is like a live wire in Middle Eastern politics, I think a lot of their governments would prefer to just move on from that. But, uh, you know, I think in a really gruesome, horrible way, the October 7th attacks were... Uh, a way of putting the Israeli-Palestinian conflict like very much back on everybody's global agenda. Like there's no way uh, to ignore it after that. So all roads to de-escalation run through Israel and Gaza. I think as long as the war in Gaza is raging, as long as the like level of casualties are as high as they are right now, and as long as there doesn't really seem to be a way out of it, it's hard to see how any of these other situations resolve themselves. Josh Keating, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Josh Keating is a senior correspondent at Vox, covering foreign policy and world news, with a focus on the future of international conflict. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. That's our membership program. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. Catch you back here next time. <laughs>